The views in this do not necessarily reflect the views of WKNC, Student Media, or NCSU. You're listening to Eye on the Triangle on WKNC 88.1. This week's Eye on the Triangle. It's Tuesday, September 22nd, and on behalf of the EOT team here at WKNC, I'd like to thank you for tuning in. I'm Ian Grice. The Wolfpack lost a member of its family last week. Joseph Alexander Banks fell off the eighth floor of Dabney Hall. People gathered together to mourn and remember Joseph the next evening, Tuesday the 15th. Mirtha Donna Storg was at the vigil and tells us how the campus community is handling the loss. This week we also have a movie review of Catch Me Daddy by Jake Winners. News beyond the headlines from Saif Hassan, and a review of the Seagulls album, You Can't See Me. And as always, we'll have the community calendar by Peter Svizzini. Matthew's shirt says, hugs if you need. At the vigil last Tuesday night, it was a strong and clear message. If you need someone, he is there. This message was repeated again and again at Tuesday's vigil. Someone is there. And the over 1,300 students were there to remember Joseph Alexander Banks, or just Joey to his friends. A first-year student from Southern Pines, North Carolina, Joey fell from the 8th floor of Dabney Hall on September 14th. Officials are still investigating the death. At the vigil, people were remembering his musical talents, his service to the community, his kind spirit. But the speakers also want everyone to remember one more thing. Student Body President Kari Cyrus. Support all around, from friends, from family, from campus resources like the Counseling Center. Director of the Center, Dr. Osborne.
If you need someone, they are there. Student Health Center, second floor. They have walk-in services every day, no appointment needed. If there's an emergency after hours, just call their number to talk to a counselor. A lot of questions pop up when a sudden death like this happens. A lot of what ifs. But the right question to ask is, what now? For Jacob Mothy, what to do now is clear. In memory of Joseph Alexander Banks. For Eye on the Triangle, I'm Mirtha Donastorg. I'm Saif Hassan, and this is your News Beyond the Headlines. A paraplegic man on death row in Pakistan is set to hang on Tuesday without the authorities explaining how they will carry out the execution. The capital punishment is due to take place despite fears over the absence of legal procedures for such a punishment. Pakistan's prison guidelines require that a prisoner stand on the gallows in order to be hanged. Abdul Basit, 43, is paralyzed from the waist down and uses a wheelchair after becoming ill in prison. He will become the 240th Pakistani to be executed since Pakistan reintroduced the death penalty in December 2014. The condemned man was convicted six years ago of murder and was to have been hanged in Lahore last month, but this was postponed. A court has now ordered the jail authorities to go ahead with the hanging, even though his mercy petition filed on July 22nd before the president is still pending. His lawyers argue that hanging him would constitute cruel and degrading treatment. They say prison guidelines do not cover how to hang a paralyzed person. The jail manual only offers hanging as a method of execution. However, these rules presume that the convict can walk up to the gallows, which is not possible in this case. A trial court issued a death warrant against Abdul Basit on Friday and ordered jail authorities to hang him on September 22nd. Both the Supreme Court and the Lahore High Court have given their consent to the execution. Rights groups say there's also a danger that hanging could go wrong and end up being a breach of the prisoner's dignity due to his incontinence, which is protected by Pakistani laws. Abdul Basit was convicted in 2009 for killing a man who was the uncle of a woman whom he was accused of having a relationship. He did deny murdering the man, and continues to do so. In 2010, he contracted tubercular meningitis, was in a coma for several weeks, and ended up being paralyzed from the waist down. Pakistan has the world's largest number of death row inmates, with more than 8,000 people reported to be awaiting execution. It is on course to have one of the highest rates of execution in the world. After stating that Europe's borders are threatened by migration, Hungary's Prime Minister has begun a week of intense diplomatic activity on the crisis. Prime Minister Orban has said migrants were breaking the doors and that a united stance was required. Ministers from Poland, Hungary, the Czech Republic, and Slovakia met to discuss an EU proposal for quotas, which they oppose. Some union countries want migrants shared out more evenly across the EU. Germany and France are among those who back plans to share the burden of relocating 120,000 migrants from Greece, Italy, and Hungary. Hungary's parliament has recently agreed to hand more powers to the military. The new law allows Hungary's army to use rubber bullets, tear gas, and net guns to control migrants at the border. Police are also allowed now to enter private homes to search for people they believed had entered the country illegally. 
the Prime Minister's stance on immigration has drawn heavy criticism from European colleagues. I'm Saif Hassan, and this has been your News Beyond the Headlines. This is Nick Weaver with my review of You Can't See Me by Seagulls. To those tuning in for the first time, which is all of you, this is a review segment for indie rock music and the like. To returning longtime fans, I appreciate the enthusiasm, but I think it's only fair that you know this is just the first episode. Anywho, the name's Nick, and today's subject is the album You Can't See Me by Seagulls. At least I think it's an album. Spotify says it's a single with five songs on it, but I was like, what? That doesn't sound like a thing. And in the first place, I was supposed to listen to the CD that Ian, the public affairs director, tried to give me, but who still owns a CD player? I don't, at the very least. At least I think I don't. Well, for the time being, we'll just call this a compilation. And as it so happens, this compilation is to be seen as the Seagulls, that's spelled S-E-E-G-U-L-L-S for anyone wondering, debut. Now, who are the Seagulls? Beats me. All I know is that this debut of theirs came out recently in 2015, and that when I couldn't think of anything else to review, this is what I was told to check out. They seem to be an indie rock band at first glance, and after having a good hands-on with this compilation, I think I can safely say that holds true. It's a very rough, unrefined, but not nonsensical kind of sound. Similar to lo-fi groups like Waves, but with the refined and finesse of such groups as Tegan and Sarah, Seagulls plants their roots in the indie rock genre. I would actually say they sound a bit like the famous 90s grunge band led by twins Kelly and Kim Deal, the Breeders, mixed in with the modern sensibilities of The Kills or Tegan and Sarah, as previously stated. Now with all of these comparisons in mind, you might have already gleaned that this is a female power vocals kind of band. Or, put simply, the vocals are done entirely by female band members. And they're great! I would have to say the vocals are a clear strength of the band, and give it a nice distinction from a lot of other noise slash indie rock bands on the market. But that's enough rambling about the artist for now. I'll get back to my overall analysis towards the end with my final thoughts. For now, it's time to move on to the compilation itself. The first song of the album is entitled, You Can't See Me. The first thing you hear as the song starts is a steady drum beat, which naturally begins to layer into the rest of the song, beginning with an almost carnival-esque guitar riff that echoes and rings with a light distortion that gives an almost bleeding effect. Immediately, the track has my attention. As the song continues and the vocals come in, I notice a sort of taunting tone within the song, as if to say that the singer is untouchable, so far out of your league that you may as well be exploring the ocean on board the Nautilus with Captain Nemo. A trademark of the vocalist is established beginning in this song with little squeaks and squeals while she sings. All of this comes together in a sort of playful bitterness and brilliantly gives off an air of youthful arrogance to the narrator. This becomes a noticeable trend throughout the compilation, painting the singer to be a certain type of girl in a certain stage of romance. This song begins the story with the singer as that girl that you could never have a chance in hell with. Not because she's a goddess or anything, but because she's too busy screwing with you to notice your affections. I must say, it's a great start to a compilation, and one of the best I've seen on any debut. Now, of course, the song isn't perfect, but I think any flaws that I find in it can easily be discussed in my overall thoughts on the compilation and band as we move towards the end. As track number one fades off eerily and echoes into the distance, we move abruptly into the second. Track two, quizzically entitled Karate Kicks, starts off much the same as the first, heavily relying on the background riff of the lead guitarist. This comes off as charmingly similar, while not being identical. However, the percussion in this song comes off as slightly grating throughout the verse, with certain beats every few seconds being just slightly off, creating a sense of sloppiness. While I personally find this to be fairly grating, I believe it works in conjunction with the rest of the song to create a continuing story. What might that be, you ask? As I said before, the songs on this compilation like to paint the singer in a certain light. 
Last song, it was Untouchable Bad Girl. This song, it's stubborn tomboy falling for the guy she torments. Notice the somewhat sloppy verse, the cliched lyrics. Now notice the clean and catchy chorus that cuts through the taunting bitterness of the verse, which seems to be making fun of typical love songs and tropes. The bass drum throughout the song sounds almost like a quickly beating heart that skips a beat in between verses, as the singer tries to hide what she really feels, denying her true intentions. It comes together very neatly to create an overall sense of longing and disdain hidden under angry and stubborn laughter. With that, we're abruptly tossed without warning into song 3 of the compilation, Cupid. Here's where things fall apart somewhat. Cupid continues the story set up in the previous two songs by transforming the singer into this floaty, lovey-dovey teenager. However, with it comes a noticeable drop in song complexity. The song begins with the slopped-on verse of oohs and ohs that don't deliver quite the satisfaction of previous songs backing riffs. Where I would usually praise variety, this change seems unwelcome, unenjoyable. It works great for the story that I'm hearing, but not so great for casual listening. Still, the song redeems itself with a catchy, easy-going chorus that reminds me highly of Cage the Elephant's Shake Me Down for some odd reason. Compared to the last song, this one genuinely sounds like a love song, complete with desire and contentedness exemplified through a distant and floaty chorus sung in a way that sounds almost like demented angels. Or not. Who knows? I could just be nutty. Anyways, the next song in the compilation is called Long Gone. Place your bets now for what happens next. Going once, going twice, last chance. Yep, it's a breakup song. Of course it's a breakup song. Like, what else could you possibly expect from something called Long Gone, a song about chasing ice cream trucks as a kid? Maybe if this were a Smashing Pumpkins album, but not here. To add to that, it's a sad breakup too. Poor little Miss Tough Girl lead singer got her heart broke, let her defenses down, and now she's all sad and wants Bay back. And you know what? It's convincing. The song is punctuated with gasping and long vocalizations that sound incredibly similar to passionate sobbing. It's all emotional and well done. Like the other songs on this compilation, it maintains an air of bitterness and distance, keeping consistent despite its change of attitude. Of course, the song itself is nothing to brag about in terms of listening quality. The chorus and bridge are great, but it's overall kind of boring. The distortion starts to wash together, and aside from the lead singer's passionate performance, there's not much happening musically. This is a consistent problem at this point. Despite the songs being enjoyable and expressive, they lack complexity, and can be mentally deciphered, dissected, and charted with only one or two listens. To their credit though, this is Seagull's debut, and I can't say it's fair to expect that level of expertise from a band just getting its feet on the ground. That aside, this song in particular reminds me a lot of The Breeders, whom I mentioned earlier. I see that as a good thing most of the time, as The Breeders were a genre-defining group. However, this song more so than the others displays this similarity up front, and it feels too derivative whether the band knows this or not. Again, small problems that can be overlooked for a young band, but I can't just let it slide without mentioning it. With that out of the way, it's time to look at the final song and move into my final thoughts on the compilation. The final song, Don't Write Me Love Songs, is another logical progression and a logical conclusion to the story that I've thus far made clear that I believe exists. If you're incredibly annoyed with my over-analysis of this compilation's meaning, then fret not, it's almost over for you. At any rate, with this song's aggressive, steady guitar, screaming vocals, and driving resolute percussion, we see a return to form in the singer's character. Now that the breakup is long over and she's had her time to grieve and be embarrassed, she realizes that she doesn't want to have to deal with that again and says screw you love with the app title of this song. Maybe I am reading too much into this. At any rate, this song is a standard album closer, and much like the falling action of any story, nothing truly exciting happens here. However, it's catchy and great for casual listening, so overall I think it's a pretty good way to end a decent compilation. So now for my final thoughts. Overall, I think this compilation is a solid debut. Within the indie rock scene, it fits in well and could be the first step in growing to be a refined band with a refined sound. I think its strengths are in the powerful, unique vocals and Dinosaur Jr.-like infectious supporting guitar riffs. 
I also think it's maybe held back by a fairly generic song structure, predictable use of distortion, and fairly typical tone of, who cares, screw you, underlying every song as is so common with most lo-fi groups. The simplicity of each song is also hard to miss. It makes for decent easy listening or background noise, but to stand on their own, seagulls will need to grow quite a bit as time goes on, and maybe learn to use the favorable aspects of lo-fi and indie rock to do something new. God help them because this is not an easy task. But I think that from what I've heard and what I've seen happen in this genre thus far, with the start this solid, they might be able to do it. So, with all that said, this is a great compilation slash album slash extended single slash Spotify thing that I listened to and reviewed in depth. If you're into indie rock pretty heavily or you're just into music funk right now, give this one a spin. I think you'll really enjoy this one. Fans of The Breeders, The Kills, and Tegan and Sarah should really enjoy this group. Also fans of Best Coast, though it's a lot less likely that you'll know who that is. Not that it's my place to tell you that, geez, why am I, some sort of hipster? But yeah, solid debut. I look forward to hearing more from them maybe in the future. Right now you can listen to this album on Spotify, or if you're one of those lucky CD player having people, you can probably order it online from their website, or grab one at a live concert, if you're extra lucky. Or you could just be a simpleton and buy it on their Bandcamp. That's cool too. As we close out, I've been Nick, though I'm also known as Lens, Meerkat, Klesk, or just that dude who can't dress himself properly in public. I'm less fond of that last one. Anyways, thanks for listening. Sorry if I came off sounding like your English teacher for this episode, but hey, I like music and literature. Sue me. If you listen to this and don't hear the same story, well, like, that's just your opinion, man. Also, the lyrics aren't available online yet, so get on that if you want to know what they're saying, everyone else. For my final rating on a scale of negative 2 to 7, I give this compilation slash album thingy a nice and clean 5. Not the best, but definitely one of the better ones. Thanks again for listening in, and I'll speak to you all again next time. This has been a music review by Nick Weaver with Eye on the Triangle. This is Jake Winters for Eye on the Triangle with your weekly movie review. This week will be a review of Catch Me Daddy. The film was released this year on the 7th of August. Catch Me Daddy was directed by Daniel Wolf, an English director who had only previously directed short films. Mentioning that his only previous work was short films should not imply that he was only directing small projects. In one of his more well-known films, entitled The Shoes, Time to Dance, Jake Gyllenhaal plays the main role. The film premiered at the Cannes Film Festival in France in 2014. It was then released in the theaters in Britain and then onto the US theaters in this year. Catch Me Daddy is an intense story of a girl trying to avoid her father. It doesn't take long for this thrill to become thrilling, as there is an air of suspense right from the beginning of the film. The film begins by presenting the audience with an overview of the main character's life. She lives in a trailer home outside of the city she works in with her boyfriend. There, the two live together, and despite the fact that they are not in the best circumstances, they seem to be enjoying their lives. The trouble starts when some people begin investigating her life and trying to kidnap her. The story, while being simple in nature, is also very complex. A person running away from their problems only to have them later catch up with themselves. The thing that separates this telling from the next is the characters and how they develop throughout the story. Character development within Catch Me Daddy gets across the moral of the story. Even minor characters have depth to them. We see the driver of one of the groups preparing to leave in the morning, and in another scene we are shown a man at the mall with his baby getting a glass hologram made of them together. These characters usually wouldn't be very important, but the film intentionally tries to point out the humanity in the minor characters. 
they aren't just henchmen working under some powerful boss. They are instead people trying to get by and support their lifestyles. Even when the older man goes to his drug dealer's house, we can get a sense for who the drug dealer is. When the audience initially sees the dealer, he is playing online poker, so we know the man is a gambler. The dealer has enough trust in the older man to let him buy his drugs while only promising to pay the next day. So just from his action, we can get a feeling for the character. Another key in the development of this minor character is the decoration of his apartment. He lives in a relatively small apartment. His living room consists of a television and a couch, along with a pet snake in the corner of the room. When the characters enter into the kitchen, there is a large family portrait hanging on the wall. This once again shows that the dealer is human. He is trying to support a family. Catch Me Daddy gives life to its minor characters, making it different from other films. A good film to compare to this that does absolutely nothing with its minor characters is Taken. Taken just shows its minor characters from the outside. We never get a view into what their lives are like and what their motivation may be for what they're doing. The filming of the movie is very pleasing and enjoyable. Robbie Ryan, the cinematographer for the film, worked most notably on Philomena in the past. Philomena is another notable British film. The most apparent shot that the film constantly does is from afar where the action of the scene becomes insignificant to the camera's eye. This happens mostly at the beginning of the film when the setting is still becoming clear to the audience, but this style of shot remains throughout. One of the most significant times this style is used is during a meeting of the two groups that the story has been following. We are shown the two cars parking and then the long distance shot begins. We don't hear what the parties say, keeping the meaning of the meeting still vague to the audience. The choice to have the camera looking on from afar becomes important in this moment. By leaving this section intentionally vague, the tension is built. The viewer can only guess at what they are actually discussing, leaving it up to interpretation. And interpretation is usually far worse than the actual truth. There is an ever-present feeling of tension kept alive by the sound and setting of the movie. Although the characters' lives are simple and there is not much going on, simple moments become tense when the sound becomes tense. The deep rumbling of bass during a rainstorm gives a hint to the underlying stress within their lives. There is hardly ever music playing for the entirety of the film, providing attention to the everyday lives of the characters in the opening scenes. Every sound is heard, and when there is no sound, there is a stillness. This stillness provides the suspense even in situations where normally there would just be a calm. The weather throughout the film is never pleasant. It is always cloudy, and if it's not just cloudy, it is raining. As with any time the weather is bad, it puts a damper on the mood making the feeling almost gloomy throughout the duration of the film. I will try not to spoil the movie for anybody listening in this review, but I have to mention the ending. The way the story starts is very similar in the manner in which it ends, suddenly, as if we were allowed a certain amount of time to watch this girl's tragic life and our time ran out at a key moment. Like running out of quarters at an arcade, the audience is left with nothing beside their imagination to continue the story. In some ways, this is the best way for any story to end. People can fill in the ending with what they like and therefore they can enjoy it. I wouldn't say this is the reason they ended the film the way they did, but as not to spoil anything, I will not go any further into detail. I enjoyed this film. I feel that many movies in the same vein tend to focus on the action to provide the suspense. Here the writers chose unpredictability in the characters. It is hard to tell what is going to happen next, and Catch Me Daddy will keep you on guard for the whole film. This movie is available to be rented online, and I would recommend you do so if you are looking for an interesting movie. Thank you for listening to this week's edition of The Movie Review. This is Jake Winters for Eye on the Triangle. Have a good night.
Good evening to you listeners out there. This is the Community Calendar, an Eye on the Triangle segment informing you of cool events and activities occurring on campus or around the Raleigh-Durham area for the upcoming week. Let's go ahead and dive right in. The Campus Farmer's Market is open to the public from 11.30 a.m. to 1.30 p.m. Wednesday in the Brickyard. This is a weekly service to the faculty, staff, and students of NCSU and the surrounding communities. The College of Sciences and the College of Textiles will be hosting a Majors Exploration event this Wednesday. The Major Exploration Series event allows current, undecided, or exploring NC State students to focus on departments and majors across campus. Each event is broken down by college, and most departmental majors have a representative to help students learn more about each area. This event is focused on the College of Science and the College of Textiles. Please be sure to bring a student ID to this event. This event will be held Wednesday, September 23rd in Witherspoon, Room 126, from 3 to 6 p.m. The Hillsborough Street Community Service Corporation will be hosting an event at the Players Retreat. Hillsborough Street, Live Work Play, and the 501 Club invite you to join them at the Community Networking Social featuring guest speaker Derek Wittenberg at the Players Retreat. Coach Wittenberg will speak to some of his memories of Hillsborough Street and the coming men's basketball season. This event is open to the public. Complimentary appetizers will be provided by the Players Retreat, and a raffle drawing will be held at the conclusion of this event. This event will be held Wednesday, September 23rd from 5 to 7 p.m. at the Players Retreat, located at 105 Oberlin Road, just past the bell tower on the way toward downtown Raleigh. The Cam Raleigh will be hosting a record-playing event this Thursday. Featuring David Manconi, they'll be having a record-playing party in their media lab downstairs. The Cam Raleigh is located at 409 West Martin Street, downtown Raleigh. This event will be held the 24th of September from 8 to 10 p.m. This event is open to the public. Hunt Library will be screening The Graduate this Sunday from 6.30 to 9. Come out and join Frank Stasio, Dr. Marsha Gordon, and Laura Boys for this screening and discussion of The Graduate, the classic coming-of-age film starring Dustin Hoffman, Anne Bancraft, and Catherine Ross. To provide a little bit more about this film, nearly 50 years ago, Mike Nichols' The Graduate came out and became one of the biggest box office successes of the decade. With its unforgettable soundtrack by Simon and Garfunkel, the film still remains a fixture of popular culture today, with its stories about the aimlessness of new college graduate Benjamin Burdock as he prepares to enter the real world. Again, this film and discussion will be held at Hunt Library Auditorium from 6.30 to 9, Sunday, September 28th. Were you wondering what those shacks were doing in the brickyard? It's Shackathon. This is a week-long event where many student organizations build wooden shacks that they must occupy for 24 hours a day for the next five days. Each of the 20 shacks across the brickyard must be manned at least by two students at all times. Over the course of the week, students fundraise to add to their donations and are competing for the largest amount of money donated. Last year, more than $37,000 was raised and donated to Habitat for Humanity to help build homes in both Wake County and abroad. Students are encouraged to approach these shack dwellers to discuss more of their student organization, Habitat for Humanity, and how to donate. This event will be ongoing from September 22nd to the 26th, and this concludes the community calendar. I am Peter Suzani, wishing you a great week ahead.
for you this evening, I'd like to thank Peter Svizini, Mirtha Donistan, Nick Weaver, Jake Winters, and Saif Hassan for contributing. As always, if you've heard anything you liked, you hated, or anything that made you think, let us know and tweet us at WKNC underscore EOT, where you can also catch up on more local news. Also, be sure to check out our blog at blog.wknc.org, where you can also download our podcast. After Hours with L-Dub and Snooze is up next at 8. And you can catch another episode of Eye on the Triangle next week right here on WKNC. For Eye on the Triangle, I'm Ian Grice.